if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. We've seen that the first two chapters of Genesis paint a, a portrait of what God created, why he created it, and what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a creation that reflects his glory and goodness and character, moved by his love and living in love with God. It was supposed to be a creation that is ordered, good, purposeful, and in right relationship with its creator and among its various parts. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw how God brought that about, moving through an orderly process of creation. And we saw that the sixth day, the last day of God's work, had two stages. As we said, it wasn't necessarily a, a day in the way that we measure days. But if it was, we might think of it as having a morning and an afternoon. During the morning of the sixth day, God creates the land animals. And on the afternoon of the sixth day, he creates the apex of his creation, mankind, created in God's own image, both male and female. And that all of this was very good. And as we talked about in the first episode, the first two chapters of Genesis should be read as a unit, as, as should the last two chapters of Revelation. Genesis 1 and 2 have different purposes, but they aren't competing narratives. God created the world in these orderly and purposeful stages, and man, both male and female, was the last thing that God created. Now we're going to zoom in and take a closer look at exactly how and why mankind was created, both male and female. In this episode, we're going to focus on several elements of the creation of man as described in Genesis chapter 2. The creation of Adam, the Garden of Eden, Adam's work, and the creation of the woman. And we'll see why, as I hinted in the last episode, that mankind's two natures, male and female, are an essential part of the image of God in mankind. We read in Genesis 2-7 that, The Lord God formed man of dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that sentence. Let's start with what we should call the man, Adam. Actually, what I just said there was something of a pun, because Hadam is the Hebrew word for man. The Bible just calls him the man, or Hadam. It isn't until the end of chapter 3, after the fall, that Adam is transformed in our English text into a proper name, Adam. So, the Lord God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, the earth. The Hebrew word for earth is Adamah, so Hadam is formed from Hadamah. The language hints at the essential connection between man and the earth, which, which ought to be a warning to us not to fall into certain religious errors or heresies. For example, it has been common in the history of religions to imagine a, a hard distinction, a, a radical disconnect between the soul and the body. 
To think of our soul as our true self and our body as only a a shell that we temporarily inhabit. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato said that we're, we're like ghosts inhabiting a machine. Pagan religions and Christian heresies imagine that our souls are created first in heaven and then sent down to be joined with bodies until those bodies expire or are destroyed, and then, the, and then the souls return to heaven. Reincarnation imagines the soul as permanent, inhabiting a series of temporary bodies. Today, our culture increasingly sees the body as temporary and disposable. As Pope Francis has noted over and over, we live in a, a throwaway culture, and we treat the body as a a wrapper or package to be tossed out when it's inconvenient. Thus, we abort unborn children if they're inconvenient, especially if prenatal tests indicate that the body will be defective. Secularists boast that we are eliminating birth defects and conditions like Down syndrome by disposing of these defective units. At the other end of life, elderly bodies are treated like old smartphones with chipped screens that have gotten too slow to run our apps anymore. The goal has become to turn them in and have our accounts downloaded into new models. In our worldview, hardware is temporary, but our data is forever in the cloud. And we increasingly think of the body as plastic, something that can be reformed, molded, customized to suit our inner self. Thus, we have gender ideologies that insist that our true self, our real identity, is our feelings and desires. Our body is nothing but, a, a, but an outfit that we wear and, and that we can change if it no longer suits us. We think that we can be born into the wrong body and make a new one if we feel like it. Male, female, something in between. Why not? It's just a body after all, a, a vehicle that our mind and wishes ride through the world inside. We should be able to customize it, even swap it out at will. But that's not what we read in Genesis 2. Pay close attention to the sequence of events. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God did not create man and then give him a body. He did not make man's soul first and then place it into a shell or a vehicle or an outfit. No. The sequence went the other way. God formed man from the dust of the ground, Hadam from Haramah, and then breathed life into him. We are not souls that have been given bodies. We are bodies that God has imparted life and his image into. To be human is to be a fusion of body and spirit. Our body is an essential component of our humanity. Now, This has all sorts of implications for the biblical narrative, for our understanding of human life in the afterlife, for moral theology and bioethics. And we'll pick up some of those issues as we follow the story the scriptures tell. But this is a critical piece of information, a a crucial insight that we cannot miss or forget in Genesis chapter 2. And that brings us to the Garden of Eden. Now, The Garden of Eden has become a a cliché in popular culture, a a sort of dumb metaphor used in everything from comedy skits to greeting cards to advertisements. Adam and Eve running around buck naked, petting unicorns. It's treated as a joke. But that's not what Eden is about in the Bible. 
It's one of the most important elements of the entire biblical story because it is the place, the original place, where God and man are in fellowship with each other. Think of the entire creation, the cosmos, as a temple built by God to be filled with his glory and love. In the temple of creation, Eden is the holy of holies, the altar, the most sacred space where man and God meet face to face. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that God would come and stroll through the garden in the cool of the day and converse with the man and the woman. In that sense, Eden is the original heaven. If mankind hadn't fallen into sin and been exiled from Eden, there would have been no need for salvation. There would be nothing to save us from. In Eden, we were all that God made us to be. We had everything that he made us to enjoy. Eden was sacred because it was the place where we saw and knew our Creator. In Eden, we were our true selves, fully human, fully living out the image of God. We didn't need clothing because we perfectly reflected God's character. Think of Michelangelo's famous statue of David. Michelangelo carved the David to look backward and capture the glory of the first Adam, and to look forward to capture the glory of the new Adam, the Christ. He wanted the statue to capture man as he was meant to be, made to be, an image of God, reflecting God's truth, goodness, and beauty, because he lived in communion with God. Now, the rest of the Bible story is about how God restores what was lost in Eden. As we go through this course, we'll see over and over again moments that recall Eden and foreshadow its restoration. For example, God meeting Moses in a burning bush and being told to take off his sandals for his holy ground. Moses on Mount Sinai meeting God. Uh, The holy place in the tabernacle that God instructs Moses to build. The Temple of Solomon. The Transfiguration on Mount Tabor. The Eucharist. These are all sacred encounters that create sacred spaces that remind us in some way of Eden and give us a foretaste of what will come to fruition in the new Jerusalem that is described at the end of the book of Revelation, where God dwells with mankind forever. Now, chapter 2 gives us some geographical information about where Eden was located, which has a lot of symbolic meaning that we don't have time to explore. The point is that there was once a place where we were who we were meant to be, living as we were meant to live, in fellowship with our Creator. And that brings us to Adam's work. Adam is placed in Eden and is given work to do. We read in verse 15 that his first job is to till the ground and to keep it. Now, this is a crucial insight into our humanity and the image of God in us. Why? Well, first it reveals that we were made to work. Work isn't something that was thrust upon us after we fell into sin. As we'll see in our next episode, the fall didn't force us to work. It made our work harder. But, as I've been saying since we began this series, God created everything with a purpose. Our purpose is to bear God's image in this world. And one of the ways we do that, that we were always supposed to do that, is to work. Why? Because God works. In fact, we just saw that he worked a six-day week. To bear God's image is to be a worker, a creator, to bring order and purpose and value to the world around us, 
to cultivate and care for it as God's representative, his steward. Obviously, there is a limited span of life in which men or women can or or should do physical labor. And productive work doesn't always have to be connected to a paycheck. It's been said that play is the serious work of children. Learning is the serious work of students. Caring for a family and home is the serious work of many women and men. Creating useful or beautiful things is the serious work of creators. Prayer is the serious work of intercessors. And serving others ought to be the serious work of all of us. And, of course, sometimes our capacity is diminished by age or illness. But when we stop trying to create value, to bring order, to be productive and useful to those around us, well, then we stop trying to be fully human, fully image bearers of God, which raises serious questions, in my mind, about a technological society that incentivizes us to spend more and more of our lives consuming and being entertained, that conditions us to waste time. Now, we also read that God planted in Eden a particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we'll talk about that tree in our next episode. And that brings us to the creation of the woman, Eve. There are two rather predictable misunderstandings of why the woman is created after the man. First, confusion. Didn't Genesis chapter 1 say that God created man in his image, both male and female? So, doesn't this contradict that? Was man the image of God without the woman? But, as I pointed out at the beginning of this episode, the story in chapter 1 is the big picture. And now we're zooming in to see the specifics. The second misunderstanding is to believe that man is more important than woman because he was created first. To consider the woman as sort of an afterthought, merely a a helper for the man who's the real image bearer of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. If we understand what's really going on in this story, we'll see that the creation of the woman after the man has something profound to teach us about the image of God in both men and women. In verse 18, the Lord God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. Why is it not good for the man to be alone? And why does he need a helper? The obvious answer is, well, the man is lonely and he can't get all his work done. But let's dig a little deeper than that. Man is made in God's image. Now, what do we know about God's nature? Well, we know that he is a trinity, the trinity, one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the case of the Father and the Son, we say in the Nicene Creed that they are consubstantial. They are composed of one substance, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both of them. The three persons of the Trinity love each other, support each other, work in concert with each other. They are not identical. They are complementary reflections of each other, similar in character, but distinct. Three persons that together are one God. So. Why was it not good for the man to be alone? Because as one person alone, he could not fully bear or reflect the image of God because God is not one person alone. To really be like God, the man needed another person to know, to love, to work alongside. And so, God brings to the man the beasts 
and the man names them, fulfilling his purpose of bringing order to the things that God creates. But none of the beasts could be the helper, the companion that was fit for him. Why? Well, the persons of the Trinity are of the same nature or type. No relationship with any animal, and I say this as someone who is best buddies with his golden retriever, can possibly be analogous to the bond between the persons of the Trinity. No animal can help Adam bear the image of God. And so, God casts Adam into a sleep, and from his side removes a rib, and from that forms the woman. Now, there's an old saying that the woman didn't come from Adam's head to rule him, or from his foot to be ruled over him, but from his side to be his co-equal companion. And that's true. But it misses a key insight. God doesn't make the woman from the dust of the earth like the man. She is not his equivalent. They are now made of the same stuff, not similar stuff, but the very same rib. They share in substance like the father and the son. And that's why when God brings her to him, Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Because humanity consists of men and women, humans can collectively better reflect the image of God. We are capable of loving and supporting and working alongside another person who shares, yet complements, our nature. Mankind, in its totality of male and female, bears God's nature. Now, of course, you're probably thinking, but the Trinity is three persons, and men and women are two. So, who's the third person that makes the image complete? And, of course, as soon as you ask that question, you probably guess the answer. God himself. When a man and a woman live together in fellowship with God in a dynamic, cooperative relationship, as the man and the woman did in Eden, the image of God is completed in them. And then Genesis tells us that, for this reason, in marriage the husband and wife become one flesh, because that reflection shines even brighter in Christian marriage. In Christian marriage, the Holy Spirit is the third person in the home, but we'll talk more about that throughout this course because marriage as an image of God's relationship with mankind comes up over and over again, all the way to those last two chapters of the Bible that we mentioned in our first episode. And now we know God's intended purpose for human life, to bear his image by loving and working in communion with God. That's what we were made to be and to do. And in our next episode, we'll discover how it was lost. <laughs>